This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Remember to listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. And be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Last Monday, June 24th, the United States Supreme Court issued its opinion in the Fisher versus Texas case. The Fisher decision ultimately reaffirmed the notion that diversity is a compelling interest that universities have the right to pursue because of the, quote, educational benefits that flow from student body diversity. Today, we're talking about diversity and multiculturalism in gifted education. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show today Dr. Donna Y. Ford. Dr. Ford is a professor of education and human development at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. Dr. Ford is also the author of several books about gifted education, including Multicultural Gifted Education and Recruiting and Retaining Culturally Different Students in Gifted Education. Good morning, Donna. Welcome to Know It All. Donna, will you first explain for us what gifted education is and historically what it was intended to do? Donna, are you there? You may have lost Dr. Ford. Dr. Ford, Hello? can you hear us? I'm yes. sorry, I can hear you. I hear you. My apologies. Okay, okay. No problem. Um, so will three... you explain first what gifted education is and then talk to us about what it was intended to do historically? Okay, there are three categories of education. One is special education and that's where we work with students who have special education needs, for example, disabilities. Um, then we have general education, which serves most students. And then there's an overlooked, often overlooked area of uh, education, and that's gifted education. And that's for students who need more challenge than typically they um, get in general education classrooms. So they're usually more advanced, either intellectually or academically, or even creatively than other students. Mm-hmm. So what was the purpose of of gifted education? Was it to separate children for the entire school day who were more academically advanced, or was it to provide just kind of periodic support throughout the school day? Um, schools serve students in, in different ways. So... In some school settings, students are completely um, in classes with other students identified as gifted. Um, you could be in another school district where they have pull-out programs, which are the most common way that gifted students are served. So during um, certain subject areas and certain times of the day, they'll, they'll be pulled out um, and placed in, you know, like a, a setting with other students identified as gifted. So the purpose is to challenge um, and meet the needs of gifted students who, you know, have high IQ scores and high achievement scores and or um, 
creativity scores. Now, that's mm-hmm. the purpose. How it's been implemented is another matter. And mm-hmm. uh, too often, gifted education ends up being a form of resegregating gifted, uh, resegregating students, especially along racial or economic lines. So there's mm-hmm. the intent, and then there's how it's implemented. And that's where my work comes in. I'm very um, disappointed and upset about how we have these gifted programs but have um, underrepresentation among black and Hispanic students in those programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when I worked at the Department of Justice, we often investigated schools and school districts that had a significant and disproportionate underrepresentation of black and brown students in gifted programming and advanced courses like advanced placement. Um, and even in my own experience, I remember walking into my elementary, middle, and high school as a kid and walking into a very diverse environment and then puzzling about the lack of other black faces in my gifted and advanced classes historically after school desegregation, schools would segregate within their schools white students in gifted classes, black students in regular or lower academic tracks, and you approach gifted disparity from two different perspectives. So the underachievement of black students who are in gifted classes and the underrepresentation of black students in gifted classes. Will you talk about those two different approaches? Well, as you just noted, it, this is a national problem, and I don't. I think it's not even an understatement to say it's a national crisis in virtually mm-hmm. every school district in the United States. Blacks, when it comes to gifted classes and advanced placement classes, uh, black and Hispanic students are almost invisible. So nationally, if you look at data from the Office of Civil Rights, and I'm basing it mainly right now on the most recent national data. That's still 2006, unless we want to talk about state-level data. Uh, But we were underrepresented. We, many African-Americans, were underrepresented by almost 50%. And when you calculate those numbers, we're talking about like 250,000 black students who who should have, uh, or approximately that number, who should have access to get the programs but don't. And then... um, Hispanic students were underrepresented by about 40%, but it still comes mm-hmm. to about 250,000 students. We talk, so we're talking about a half million black and brown students who don't have access to gifted programs. And so my mm-hmm. uh, major argument is that this, under, this inequitable, this inequitable underrepresentation does contribute to the achievement gap, and it does contribute to gifted black and Hispanic students underachieving, period, not reaching Mm -hmm. their potential. So we've got to address this issue in every single school district where there are gifted programs. And and although AP is not, you know, just designated for gifted, but gifted and AP classes, it's got to be addressed in every Mm -hmm. school district. So why is it important? Why why is it? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, um, and even though I gave those percentages, I'm going to give you, one school district's uh, data. In one school district where I worked, Hispanic students were roughly 42% of the school district, and white students were 42% of the school district. However, Hispanic students were only 5% of those identified Mm -hmm. as gifted. So they're almost invisible in those gifted programs. 
Um, and it matters because, one, their um, academic and intellectual needs are not being met, which means it contributes to their underachieving. Two, when they're underachieving, meaning not reaching their potential, they're less likely to um, not just do poorly in school, but probably even end up going to college or going to an elite college. They're going to be ill-prepared to do really well um, in college, even though they're very, you know, capable uh, students. And it's going to continue to contribute to this gap between black and white students or, or Hispanic and white students, whereby white students are, you know, several years, more advanced academically because of these inequities or disparities. Mm-hmm. So, so we already have too does... many black students not, I'm sorry, we already have too many black students not doing well, but then you add, mm-hmm. okay, these are gifted students and they're not doing as well as their white counterparts. Right. I mean, it just does not make sense and it should not be the case. Mm-hmm. So in thinking about the underrepresentation of black and brown children in gifted education, what role do you think institutionalized racism plays a part? You know, I, I um, saw many, many school districts and have seen many different schools where uh, the, the population of the teaching staff and the administrative staff uh, wouldn't lend itself to a claim of intentional racial discrimination in in the placement of students in advanced programming, meaning that the the staff and and administrators were themselves black and Latino, and still you find these, this underrepresentation of black and brown children in gifted programming. What role does institutionalized racism play in that? Okay, so that's an important and complex issue, so let me try to tease it out. Um, in mm-hmm. most school districts, um, or nationally, 70, I'm sorry, 85% of teachers are white. Um, mm-hmm. most, te- most of these white teachers have not been trained in gifted education, mm-hmm. period, I should just say, most teachers. And most have not had training in multicultural education, nor working with children who live in and poverty. So, mm-hmm. and that, that goes for African-American uh, teachers who are only 7% of the teaching force and Hispanic mm-hmm. teachers who are only 7%. So without this training in all of those areas, then teachers too often have these stereotypes about gifted students. And they have colorblind views of gifted students. So they're not able to look at the the characteristics and needs of students associated with being gifted, no less being black or Hispanic, meaning culturally different from the white kids, or being Mm -hmm. poor. And, of course, not all uh, African Americans or Hispanics are are poor, but I'm saying that just adds another layer uh, to the problem. So in my work, I mean, and our call, our talk is timely, Mm-hmm. Less than two weeks ago, I published um, a book called Recruiting and Retaining Black and Hispanic Students in Gifted Programs. And it is mm-hmm. 20 years of work going into why we are having a problem recruiting black students as well as Hispanic and then keeping them in there. I argue mm-hmm. that the number one reason is deficit thinking. 
teachers' attitudes. Mm-hmm. They are not referring black and Hispanic kids to get the programs. And then that vicious cycle of underrepresentation ensues. In most school districts, I think it's something like 90% of school districts, in order to be identified as gifted, you have to, one, be referred, or at some point in the identification process, you know, teachers have to fill out a, you know, a checklist, for example, on you. And if they don't mm-hmm. fill that out, you either stop at the gate or you just don't make it past. Uh, you, you don't do. Uh, you don't get formally identified, even if you have high test scores and a high GPA. If you don't get that stamp of approval from teachers, you're not like we're not likely to be identified. So it's not just institutional racism because then we're talking about policies. It's individual racism in many times as well. Um, so it's mm-hmm. one the attitude deficit thinking and prejudice, et cetera. And then there's the bias test and bias policies and procedures that have that negative impact um, on our presence in gifted programs and AP classes. Mm-hmm. And so for, for black and Latino children who do make their way into gifted programming, um, who are referred by teachers into gifted programming, talk about retention um what how do schools make sure to to keep children in gifted programs who have been referred there right and that and that's exactly why I, I call the book recruitment and retention so once we have them in what do we do to keep them in um and both of it both require ongoing extensive training in multicultural education or being culturally responsive. Otherwise, you know, we're putting students sometimes in that proverbial lion's den. You know, I remember mm-hmm. being in, a, in um, this is an analogy, but I, I remember being in private school in the 10th grade. I got an academic mm-hmm. scholarship um, to go to a private school. And I believe uh, um, there were like maybe five, no more than six black students in this high-income private school, it was a nightmare. It was a disaster mm. for me, um, social and emotionally. These white females, and I know we're talking about years ago, but I'm saying it just repeats itself uh, consistently. Yeah. But they wanted to have nothing to do with me because I was black. This is my interpretation mm-hmm. as a 15-year-old. They, they wanted mm-hmm. nothing. We had nothing in common because they were extremely wealthy and I was poor. Um, they mm-hmm. resented many times that I would do better than them in school. The teachers mm-hmm. would put us in groups to do work, and and they would, you know, and then say, like, call each other over the weekend, something like that. They'd give me the wrong telephone mm-hmm. number. So then I could oh, not no. participate. Right, and so then the teacher like, why why aren't you doing your work? So, I mean, and, and we're talking about a long time ago, and I still get emotionally charged about that mm-hmm. spirit. So I left. I mean, and then, by the way, I could handle the young ladies. The teachers mm-hmm. were my nightmare. Um, they right. were, they did not protect me. They did not support me. They didn't understand. I didn't feel like I talked to them. And that was, you know, 1976. I'm saying take off 1976 and put in 2013, and it's happening today. Um, mm-hmm. So this is why I write about the retention piece, and that teacher training is essential. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then the students will feel more protected. 
Um, another important point is that too often, because um, black and Hispanic students, especially if we live in poverty, don't get, even, even if we get identified as gifted, don't get necessarily the, um, to be at the highest performing schools, we might be a little bit behind our more economically advantaged uh, classmates. So we're sometimes playing catch up and keep up. If the teachers, you know, don't understand this notion of being gifted and low performing or gifted and underachieving, you're not going to get much support at all. That's in get the programs and that's in advanced placement classes. So what social emotional supports are in place, what academic supports are in place, and, and the positive uh, attitude of teachers. And when I say teachers, I'm talking about the administration, you know, the, the adults in the building have to be uh, in place. Um, so that retention is essential. And I'm going to tell you a quick, quick story. So when I was writing that book, um, it was back in J- January, I think it was, I was trying to put the finishing touches on the recruitment and retention book. I was tired. I was frustrated. And I just wanted to get this book done with. And I got an email from a mom who had seen me do a presentation, a black mom, who had seen me do a presentation a few months before. She said that her mm-hmm. daughter had been identified as gifted, her second-grade daughter. Um, mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. the only black child in the gifted program. Within one month, and I talk about this in that book and in almost all my presentations, within one month she had been spit on, she mm-hmm. had juice poured in her hair, she had been teased. She, the, the young girls had formed a club. We hate, and I call her Leilana. We form, mm-hmm. we hate Leilana Club, and Mom had to eventually just pull her daughter out of that program. So they had recruited mm-hmm. her, but they did not retain her social emotional reasons. Right. And, and the teacher, I think she said the teacher and or the principal, principal thought that Leilana was being too sensitive, you know, that she, mm. that, she, that maybe it was all in her head, you know, just getting her hair, you know, juice poured in her hair, and that the girls really did not have any problems with her. It was ridiculous. So whenever I, you know, get tired of, of all this, uh, well, just you just get exhausted from trying to desegregate yeah. gifted education and desegregate AP classes. I think about my story, and I think about, my son's story, and I think about Leilana. So this is personal to me as well mm-hmm. as professional, personal mm-hmm. and professional. Right. So for for children like Leilana and the environments that they are are put in when they are put into gifted programs, um, what kind of training? What what does culturally responsive teaching and multicultural, um, multi multiculturally sensitive training look like for teachers. Um, a qualification is this, and I'm not sure if you or listeners have ever thought about this, but when it comes to Hispanic students, Mexican students, Cuban students, Puerto Rican students, and the other groups or subgroups, it's we think people seem to recognize that they have a culture and mm-hmm. uh, a cultural difference is not necessarily thought of as a, as a deficit or what's wrong with, you know, what's wrong with why you do things that way. I mean, we get that too. But 
mm-hmm. their culture, they're recognized as having a culture. When it comes to African-Americans, or, you know, blacks, I think people don't seem to believe that we have a culture. So we do things mm-hmm. in a different way. It's, it's perceived as a deficit, like, you know, why do you people do that in this way? What's wrong with you people? So we, they get mm-hmm. blinded. Those with decision-making um, uh, power get blinded by what they think or misinterpret as being wrong with us as opposed to there's nothing wrong with us. We just do some things um, differently. So I, I train educators on what is culture, what are cultural differences, where you might have a cultural clash, you know, in what way might you have a cultural clash with your students. So here are the characters that we often think of as gifted, and here are characteristics of African Americans. Let's blend those so that you recognize that those are not competing characteristics. They blend in quite well if you understand that Donna is black and gifted, not black but gifted or gifted but black. And I do the same with Hispanics, you know, not dealing in stereotypes, but dealing in common cultural characteristics. So when it's extensive, when it's not superficial, when I'm using case studies, you know, real stories, real examples, um, many teachers, um, they get it. And so they're able to now look, look not look beyond, but understand and appreciate, hopefully respect those differences so that they're not blinded um, to the point where they misinterpret those differences. And by the way, it's another show, but those misinterpretations of differences also explain why too many, why too many black students, especially our black males, are in special mm-hmm. education, misplaced in special education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in order to not delve in uh, stereotypes, I'd imagine it's a very fine line that you're walking in um, articulating cultural characteristics uh, but but not um, reinforcing beliefs right. in particular stereotypes. So how what, what sorts of characteristics are you, what are some examples of some of the characteristics that you explain to teachers? Um, what the, the, one of the first ways I approach talking about cultural differences, and you're right, it's a fine line between talking about cultural characteristics and stereotyping, is I just give overall research about uh, culture. So, for example, I like the work of Hofstede, who has studied different char- uh, about eight or nine characteristics of culture across different countries. So, And he puts them on a continuum. So you have on one end individuals or cultures that are individualistic. And then on the other end of that continuum, very collective or communal or um, interdependent. So which groups, mm-hmm. which countries are more, lean more toward individualism or, or um, collectivism? African Americans, for example, we tend to be on the collectivist um, continuum, mm-hmm. very people-oriented, very family-oriented, we, us, our philosophy. And I'm and see, I'm using the word tend. That means I'm not mm-hmm. stereotyping. Right. That means they're exceptions. Right. So the phrasing matters. Um, so if you're in a classroom and your teacher wants you to consistently work by 
then there's going to be some conflict right there. Um, mm-hmm. There are cultures that are very um, passive versus assertive, and I'm not going to use the word aggressive. I said assertive. But mm-hmm. if you don't know that child, you would say they're aggressive. And so without stereotyping, but talking about generalization, um, Asian cultures are considered more passive and mm-hmm. African Americans are considered more assertive. So mm-hmm. if teachers are are not don't understand that assertiveness, then you consider it aggressive. And that's that misunderstanding. Um there's also, and this is probably the uh, highly studied dimension, is notions of time. Um, so there's mm-hmm. polychron- uh, monochronic, and then there's mm-hmm. polychronic. And and most of non-whites tend to be polychronic. You know, time is mm-hmm. social. The event is the master. You love being around people. You're not watching the clock, you know. You know, tomorrow, you know, if, if you don't turn something in on time, you know, it's not the end. Tomorrow will come, so you'll get it tomorrow. So it's not a, a passive or, or um, irresponsible sense of time. It's just a different sense of time. So when teachers understand that even time varies across cultures, then they're able to break up assignments into meaningful tasks. They're able to understand why the students are tuning things out because, is not engaging, is not relevant, doesn't relate to them. Um, mm-hmm. Without that training, there's a negative spin put on it. I mean, those are just three examples um, of many, and I'm hoping that readers, I mean, listeners don't think that's stereotyping. We just give us some examples and really just have to delve into culture. And this is one thing. I'm not going to go and do a workshop on 15 minutes right. of what culture is and put those characteristics there because you're not going to mm-hmm. get it. It takes time. So I mm-hmm. try to spend mm-hmm. hours, weeks, semesters helping my teachers understand culture without stereotyping. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Claude Steele and others have written about stereotype threat for um, black children um, and Latino children who for instance, when they sit to take um, standardized tests or other exams, face the the stereotypes that have been placed on them or lingo such as the achievement gap and really take that, um, internalize that conversation and um, have difficulty then performing because of the stress of the the, the pressure that, that those those concepts have placed on them. Have you? What is your thought about stereotype threat and its effect on retaining black and brown children in gifted programs? Um, I, I love Claude Steele's work. I have great appreciation for it. Um, his most recent book called Whistling Vivaldi really is a, is greatly captures the most recent you know work that he's doing on stereotype uh, threat. So having said that. Um, I think that any time I look at stereotype threat as race-based test anxiety. So if you do not believe that you are going to be a good test taker, period, then you tend not Mm -hmm. to do well. But when you equate, um, when you believe that 
black people don't test well, this is the best, that particular stereotype that you're referring to. So when it comes time for a test, you, you enter the test with low confidence and may not even try. It's like, what's the use in trying? I'm not going to do well. So I was interviewed mm-hmm. by a newspaper yesterday in the Maryland area, and the reporter was asking me about that very thing. She was concerned mm-hmm. that in this particular area, and it's actually widespread, but in this particular area, when it comes to taking the AP exams, black students are refusing. They would take the AP class but we were, and, made, and do well, or sometimes not do well, but take the AP class, do well, and then either refuse to sit for the AP exam. So yesterday she was saying, she asked them why, and they said because black kids don't do well on tests. So I'm not going to do well on it anyway. Why waste my time? That is stereotype threat. That's stereotype mm-hmm. threat. So where do kids, where do black students, more than any other racial group or cultural group, um, how do how do we come to learn or believe that we don't test well? So it goes back, I think, to you know, of course, the media, but more importantly, I think, or just as importantly, what's going on in schools where kids mm-hmm. we learn to believe we don't test well. So Vivaldi's work. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, not Vivaldi. Um, Claude Jules' work and other people, um, you know, really shed light on that. But one strategy people are arguing is effective is moments before African Americans are um, about to take a test, just give extensive words of encouragement, you know, to promote self-efficacy. You are intelligent. You're smart. You know this stuff. You're going to do well. Go do it. And, mm-hmm. and just that little bit of um, of uh, encouragement goes a long way. Goes a long way. It seems simplistic, but um, it's not. Mm-hmm. So, so I do believe it contributes to the achievement gap. I do I mean it, this race-based test anxiety. I do believe it contributes to underachievement, um, but not to the magnitude. That, that the achievement gap exists and that underrepresentation and gifted programs exist. I mean, I, I think it's more teacher attitude, educator attitudes and policy um, issues that are at play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there has to be some reason for there to be stereotypes, right? There has to be that pressure in the first place, uh, which which comes from the, the system. Um, are you yeah. at all worried about self-fulfilling prophecy with some of the the terminology that that we now find in mainstream, including the achievement gap and the school-to-prison pipeline and and terms that were and have been intended to really highlight uh, issues of, as you say, crisis in um, the black community, the Latino community in this country. is there are we potentially perpetuating deficit mindsets about black children with our use of such terms? Well, I think the messenger matters. Mm-hmm. When meaning, I not only work with educators, I work with African American parents in particular, as well as our African American males, even more so. To to unbrainwash them, unbrainwash us, so that we don't 
live down to these negative expectations, that we have more of a prove it wrong, you know, kind of attitude. So one example is I will talk to the parents. Let's just go with a parent example, black parents, about all the variables that contribute to the achievement gap, not just what takes place at school, but what are they doing at home that contributes to the achievement gap. And Mm -hmm. some things are, you know, more controllable than others. Um, So you may have to work two jobs. So clearly daycare or child care is, you know, uh, we call it expensive, so you may not be able to afford it. And so you may not be mm-hmm. spending, may not be able to spend as much time with your kids as you like. Um, so that may be out of your control, and hopefully, you know, that will correct itself. But making sure, requiring, demanding that your children read every day, or you read to them, or somebody reads to them as often as possible, that's some, that's more controllable. Turn up, turning off the television. That's more controllable. So empowering, educating, and then empowering parents to, you know, to take the steps to, that they can control to not contribute to the achievement gap is is enlightening. So when I told a group of parents that black kids tend to watch television, ooh, a lot more than white children, and that mm-hmm. this was taken away from their reading, their writing, their schoolwork, these parents are like, you know what, I get it now. And we got to turn off the television or no television, especially mm-hmm. if you're not doing well in school. They got right. the importance of reading. You know, when I said why kids need to read every day, our children need to read every day or be read to every day, you know, you got to have these strong vocabulary skills and reading and writing skills to do well on any test, I mean, and, and to do well in school, period. Um, and I'm being more general than specific right now, but the parents got it. They're going to read to their mm-hmm. kids every day or have them read to. Um, so when when they get enlightened, it makes all the difference in the world. And and same thing. I talked to the students. Do you know asking them? Do you know that prison populations or projections for prison beds are built on black males and their reading level in elementary school? They can't believe it at first, and then we show them the data. Yes, this is why you need to read. read. And math mm-hmm. is important, too. So it's not always about um, other people trying to help our black students, especially our black males. they got to learn how to help themselves. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've created programs and projects on promoting a scholar identity um, among African-American uh, males. And we need to do the same with females and Hispanic students um, also. So they really do understand the importance of education and living up mm-hmm. to whatever their potential is. Mm-hmm. You know, as I as I go about this work every day, I I am constantly thinking about buy-in and how to get buy-in uh, for diversity, for efforts such as yours to increase uh, diversity within gifted programs. How, what Will you talk about why it is important for us as a nation to think about and focus on diversity and multiculturalism in gifted education? Uh, And I'm not being facetious, but we can't be caught up, 
you, we cannot be colorblind. People cannot be colorblind. Right now, our public schools are almost half black, uh, half black, his, combined half black, Hispanic, Asian, and uh, Native American. Um, the newest data show that, and I think the last two years of the new infants of the infants born, 51% are non-white. So diversity has always been around, but it's definitely here to stay, and it is increasing. It is inequitable. It is inequitable to have, you know, such a huge portion of our black and Hispanic students not doing well. I mean, if you are identified as gifted, I mean, if you're gifted, I'm sorry, and not Mm -hmm. identified, our kids, and this is white kids too, find a way to use Mm -hmm. those gifts and talents in socially unacceptable ways. So Mm -hmm. I'd rather we channel that intellect, channel the academics, channel that creativity in more positive ways so that we can have access to college, access to, um, you know, these uh, more professional uh, careers. So it's kind of like that notion of atrophy. If you don't use it, you lose it. What are we going to do to make sure that our kids are challenged in school and um, and therefore have a, a high-quality life as a result? Now, by no means am I arguing that if you're not identified as gifted, you know, you can't be successful. That's not my point. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you are very intelligent and extremely high in academics and you're not served, um, it, it just doesn't tend to lead, lead to positive um, outcomes. Um, I have a young lady whose mother is a good friend of mine. She's in, she's in a fifth, going to sixth grade, but she's not been identified as gifted um, because a teacher did not fill out this checklist. She makes straight A's. She got 3.9 GPA. Um, she mm-hmm. has she passed almost all the achievements and during statewide tests, but she's not been identified as gifted. And this year alone, you could just see a little attitude coming, whereby. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I'm just as smart as anybody else. Why am I not identified? When it, at the end of the school year, when her teacher, and she knows her teacher, did not score high on the checklist, when he said something like, you know, I'm going to miss you, she just looked at him, you know, and, and said to herself, I'm not going to miss you. <laughs> you know, she's raised mm-hmm. not to be disrespectful, but mm-hmm. she couldn't wait to get out of that teacher's classroom. So then there's this, like, resentment that can ensue when when you've been denied opportunities that you should have access to. And this is a fifth grader, a fifth grader. Mm-hmm. So the implications, I think, are profound when you when you when your ability um, is not nurtured. I think the implications are profound. Yes. Dr. Donna Ford is a professor of education and human development at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Ford is also the author of several books about gifted education, including Multicultural Gifted Education and her most recent Recruiting and Retaining Culturally Different Students in Gifted Education. You can find her at www.drdonnawyford.com. That's www.drdonnawyford.com. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Donna. 
Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. You are now officially certified know-it-alls about diversity and gifted education. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. My website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find ABC on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.